The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, as people are trickling in, let me just kind of go through some of these early slides to remind you of what we do in our Sunday school class. We rotate these four topics, and today we're going to be surveying the book of Judges. Uh, Last time we surveyed a book, it was uh, Jose Fernandez surveyed Joshua, and Judges is quite the contrast from the book of Joshua. I just wanted to give credit to these three sources that I looked at and used. I'm hoping, uh, Dale Ralph Davis has written, it's kind of a commentary on the book, and I didn't have a chance to really utilize a lot of his juicy tidbits in today's class, but in December I have the opportunity to teach on a practical theme, and I think I'm gonna come back to Judges and really dig into Dale Ralph Davis's um, book that he wrote on the book of Judges. It's such a rich book, and within 45 minutes, we're just gonna scratch the surface. So this is kind of the rough outline that I'm gonna follow, and let's pray and ask God to bless our class. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We know that you are not distant from us, that your presence is everywhere in the universe, that you inhabit eternity, eternity past and eternity future is all the same to you. And we're mere mortals, sinners, and we come to you, the infinite God, with thanksgiving in our hearts for your grace and your love through the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray at the outset of this Lord's Day that you would bless us, that your Holy Spirit would make the word come alive in our hearts. Please bless the children and all, the, all their teachers today. And may you get honor and glory as we study your word. And we pray for Christ's glory and in his name, amen. I just wanted to start off with these two verses. Um, We're gonna be looking at the book of Judges, which um, is many hundreds and even thousands of years from this first verse, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord spoke these words to the serpent immediately after Adam and Eve sinned against his law. So here's a promise of salvation, that the seed of the woman is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will crush the serpent's head on the cross, and his heel will be bruised. So that's metaphorical language pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the cross work of Jesus Christ. Christ, and what we see all through the Old Testament is this holy war going on between, between Satan and between Yahweh, between Christ and Satan. And we see this played out in the book of Judges, but we see it throughout the Old Testament because this promise that a seed, a Messiah will be born from a woman 
that seed has to be protected throughout the Old Testament. I, I had the privilege of witnessing four births of my four children, and I got to cut the umbilical cord. And I was thinking of that when, when I was thinking of this verse and how God protected. You know, men acted on their own free will, but God overruled everything and protected each of the ancestors of Christ so that he would come into the world and save us from our sins. Promise to Abraham, Genesis 17, seven, seven and eight, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an, ever, ever, as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So we see these two promises one is of a spiritual nature, or both of them are of a spiritual nature, but there's also natural and physical ideas woven into these promises. And I just, we're not gonna read this, but I, I just kind of cut and pasted Matthew 1 and Luke 3, because we're given the genealogy of Christ from, from Abraham forward in Matthew and from Adam forward in, uh, in Luke, and Luke, depicts, scholars believe, depicts uh, Mary's descendant and then Matthew, Joseph's descendants. So we see that God makes promises and he keeps his promises and we even have documentation to prove it. So that's just by way of introduction. Let's kind of consider some background issues and historical context of the book itself. The book of Judges is altogether the reverse of the book of Joshua. In Joshua, an obedient people conquered the land through trust in the power and promises of Almighty God. Believing God's promise of divine help, Joshua and Caleb, along with all the descendants of those who died in the wilderness, saw the mighty hand of God as they took possession of the promised land. But in the book of Judges, God's people, despite God's clear promises to give them divine help, refused to destroy and drive out the enemies of God from the land of Canaan. They were afraid, for the inhabitants of the lowlands had chariots of iron. They forgot God. They walked by their own sight and not by faith in the promises of God. They looked at the chariots of iron. They looked to themselves instead of looking to God, who is the great promise keeper. He's the great faithful promise keeper. Joshua conquered and controlled the promised land, but the next generation of God's people were defeated time and time again because they forgot God and did not believe in his power or in his promises. They turned away and ignored his promises and failed to believe in his power. The book of Judges shows how Israel, in great measure, set aside God's law and in its place substituted what was right in their own eyes. 
In those days, there was, a, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 17, 6. The 12 tribes, frequent and habitual neglect of God's law, resulted or led to their own hearts having been corrupted. It led to their corruption inwardly and it led to their oppression from without. God had promised to be with them and promised to uphold them and protect them and provide for them, but they ignored him and they became corrupt and they became like those people that lived in the land of Canaan. Notice how this chart highlights the contrast from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges. Joshua, the word freedom comes to mind. Judges, bondage. Joshua, progress. Judges, decline. Joshua, conquest through belief. Judges, defeat through disbelief. Joshua 24, 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Judges 3, 7, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashereths. Now if we could go into a study of these false gods and what they did, it's appalling how they practiced their religion with, with uh, temple prostitutes, with human sacrifices, with all manner of wickedness. Israel served God under Joshua, but Israel served themselves in the book of Judges. Now this is in large part. There were pockets of faithful men and women during the time of Judges. The book of Ruth is placed right into this period and we see even a Gentile woman giving her heart to the Lord. Joshua, the objective morality, but the judges, they had subjected morality. They did what was, ever, what was ever right in their own eyes. Israel pressing onward in Joshua, but spiraling downward under the judges. Sin is judged by Joshua and the leaders in the book of Joshua, but sin is tolerated under the judges, or the period of the judges. Faith and obedience versus very little faith and obedience. So this is the background, this is the context that we find the people of God in the land of Canaan during the period of the judges. But despite the unfaithfulness of God's people in a time span of nearly four centuries, God raises up military champions one after another to throw off the yoke of oppression. Pagan idolatry drew the hearts of God's people away into all kinds of wickedness, and yet our God was faithful to restore the nation to pure worship. In Judges 2.16 we read, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God faithfully keeps his chosen nation viable and enduring because of the seed of the woman will be preserved for the day of fulfillment. God is faithful. He is our salvation. Even when we're faithless, he is true to his promises. But all too soon, the sin cycle 
begins again as the nation's spiritual declension grows gradually colder and colder. The Hebrew title of the book of Judges is Shaphatim, which means rulers or deliverers and saviors, or as our Bible say, judges, Shaphatim. The root word, the Hebrew word is Shaphet, and it carries the idea of maintaining justice, settling disputes, as well as liberating and delivering. Some of the judges that God raised up are deliverers or saviors of the people, and some are administrators and rule with justice, and some of the judges did both. Now regarding the author of the judges, Scholars are not completely certain, but most believe Samuel or one of his prophetic assistants wrote Judges using both written sources as well as oral transmission. Jewish tradition contained in the Talmud, which are ancient rabbinic writings about the law, attribute the authorship of Judges to Samuel. Samuel the prophet certainly was the crucial link between the period of the Judges and the period of the monarchy or the kings. Based on clear markers within the scriptures, we know Judges was written before 1004 BC, and that's when David took possession of Jerusalem. So it's believed the book was written sometime during the time of Samuel. Samuel's life and time fits with the book of Judges and is consistent with the style and orderly scheme of Judges, which points to a single author. It's important to take note of the fact of chapter 18, verse 30, because it contains a phrase that creates an objection for some of this claim that dates the writing of Judges before 1004 BC. The phrase reads like this. It says, quote, until the day of the captivity of the land. Here scholars argue to which captivity does the author of Judges refer. If he refers to the Assyrian captivity of Israel, which happened much later in 722 BC, the older date cannot be right. However, most scholars believe that reference to a captivity is referencing the Philistine captivity during the time of the Judges. This event is actually described as a captivity in Psalm 78, verse 61. Now, we don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to read that section later on of Psalm, 70, Psalm 78. Matter of fact, read the whole psalm. It's a long psalm. It has over 60 verses, but in it, it kind of, it kind of walks through uh, from, from the time of Egypt right up through the, the time period of the judges how God was faithful even when his people were faithless. Now regarding the setting, when Joshua and the people of God conquered the promised land in seven years, by God's grace, much of the land remained possessed by the enemies of God. We read in Joshua 13.1, now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Then a list of those lands and peoples still needing to be driven out and defeated were given. But at the end of that list, just as the list ends, we read this in Judges 13, 6. 
Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. So we see that many more Canaanite strongholds needed to be taken and the people needed to be driven out. But we learn that these nations have been left there to test Israel. In Judges 3, we read this. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, the Lord left, that he might test them, that he might test Israel by them. Then later on it says, and they were left, that he, capital H, might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. This is an amazing passage. God is always on his throne, ruling over and in the affairs of his people. He's always on his throne, ruling over and in the affairs of his people. And yet, without sin, he's pure and holy. This is an amazing doctrine that's taught throughout the scriptures, which we can take comfort in, even in times of difficulty, in times of trial. The events covered in Judges ranges from about 1380 B.C., to about 145 BC. It's about a 335 year period. But the period of Judges extends another 30 years since it includes the life of Samuel. Now here we see the rulerships of some of the Judges overlap because not all of them ruled the entire land. They ruled in different areas of the land and at different times. I want to remind you of a few things as you look at the map. Israel at this time does not have a king. Israel is a theocracy. God is king and rules over the nation. We see that when by the hand of Moses, he brought them out of, out of Egypt with his infinite power. We see it also as Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho with God's people. God ruled over his people and he ruled over their destiny while each tribe at the same time ruled by the patriarchs of each individual family and the Levites also ministered the word of God and the sacrifices. So we see man's responsibility in local rulership, but we also see God sovereignly ruling, sovereign, sovereignly ruling over his people. And it's the same with us as Christians. We're responsible and we can't, we can't forget about our responsibility and our duties and our obligations and our privileges because we're letting go and letting God and we're seeing what he might do. It, it seems like every Christian is tempted to lean one way or the other, meaning they work really hard and forget God, it's all about me, or they're waiting for God to work and they're trying to analyze uh, providence all the time and forgetting to get busy with their work. And we see throughout the scriptures that man needs to work and pray as though everything depends upon him, but believe and know and trust that really everything is in God's hands. 
We also see described in this book cycles, cycles of apostasy or turning away from God, then comes oppression, and then deliverance. And let me go back here. You know, God is a promise keeper. He brought them into the land that he promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But because of their disobedience, they're assimilating into the, into the pagan uh, religions and even m- marrying pagans and forgetting about God and doing all kinds of wickedness. But God is raising up these judges to keep his promise. So here we just see some other ways of describing this cycle of sin, oppression, and then God being a savior, God bringing salvation through, through a judge, through a deliverer. And we know that all of these judges point to the great judge, to the great savior, to the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. Every page is about Jesus Christ. Judges is one of the several historical books of the Old Testament. However, it's not strictly chronological in, its orga- in the way it's organized. It's organized thematically. So here we see the historical books of the Old Testament. And Judges takes his place next to those others. Take a little break from our survey and open up to Judges chapter 3. I want us to get a feel for what these cycles were like. <clears throat> Judges is not, is not a boring book. I mean, none of the Bible's boring if you understand its purpose, but some of it's just a little bit more juicy than others. And uh, I think juicy is a, is a good word to describe this, this uh, passage that I'm gonna read, read to you. <laughs> it's God's word, not mine. It's Judges chapter three, verse 15. I wanna read 18 verses together just for us to get a feel for this cycle of sin, oppression, and then deliverance. So look at verse 15 of chapter three and follow as I read the next 18 verses just a little bit into chapter four. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged, it was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he th- brought the tribute of Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgag and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. Now some people surmise in the the Hebrew, at least uh, Pastor Borgman did, that the reason he was left-handed, that maybe his right hand was not working, that he was disabled. And he put the, the sword on his right leg so he could grab it with his left hand and use it when needed. So just highlighting how sometimes 
the deliverers that God raises up are, are, he doesn't need to work with a whole lot, whether it's Gideon or whether it's Ehud. God can use anybody and often uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. So here in, in uh, verse 20 we read, so Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from the right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Now if you have an ESV, it says, and his dung came out. So he was on the porcelain throne in his chamber and that's where uh, Ehud stabbed King Eglon while he was on the porcelain throne. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. You can imagine the sight and the smell of that room. But Ehed had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Hurasheth, Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel." So we see there the cycles, the cycles of uh, disobedience, oppression, then a deliverer, and then a time of rest. And that, that goes on all through the book of Judges. And I think it's important that, that we don't just read that as Old Testament history and say, oh, that was amazing how God intervened in the affairs of men way back when. We have the same God who's sovereign on his throne. And he is, he is, coming back one day, but right now he's gathering in his people who are gonna enjoy him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. God is active in your life. He's active in providence. 
He's active through his word and through his spirit, just like he was then. We can read our own lives, our own testimonies, our own providence, and and be thankful that God has worked in our lives, can't we? But we have to believe it. We have to believe it. And then be thankful for it. Well, that brings us to the literary nature of the book, which I've covered all right now. Let me share with you the general structure and outline of the book. So after Joshua and the generation of the conquest passed on, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So children are being born, and those children are not learning about God's word and about God's works in the history of, of Israel. You know, this fast forward, fast forward over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Chuck won't be here. I won't be here. Pastor Smith won't be here. Pastor Deacon won't be here. Now, I might be off, maybe added in a few more years. But there's gonna come a time where our, the, the ones with gray hair are gone. And then you and your children are left. And we cannot forget the word of God. We cannot forget all of his precious promises and we must believe them. We must believe them experientially, trust in them and believe them and take them to our bosom and live upon them like it's our food. Judges opens up with a description of Israel's deterioration, then continues with seven cycles of oppression and deliverance and concludes with two illustrations of Israel's depravity. A sad and disgraceful ending to the book of Judges, and you can read it in the latter chapters on your own. So part one is deterioration of Israel and failure to drive out and destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. Here, under this heading, Judges begins with short-lived military successes after Joshua's death, but quickly turns to repeated failures because the tribes refuse to drive out the enemies. The people feel the lack of a unified central leader. There's no king in Israel at this time. But the primary reasons for their failure are the lack of faith in God and a lack of obedience to his word. Compromise leads to conflicts and chaos. It's true in our homes as well, isn't it? Compromise leads to conflict and chaos. Israel does not drive out the inhabitants. Instead of removing the moral cancers, it's spread throughout the inhabitants. Canaan, Israel became more like Canaan and a disease was contracted. The Canaanite gods literally become a snare to God's people. And a pattern is found all throughout chapters three through 16. And then part two, we see deliverance of Israel through these judges that are raised up over seven cycles. Chapter three, verse five, all the way to chapter 16, verse 31. In this section, it describes seven apostasies or falling away from God, seven servitudes and seven deliverances. Each of the seven cycles has five steps Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and then silence or rest. 
These also can be described by the words rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration, and rest. The seven cycles connect together as a descending, spiraling of sin downward. Israel vacillates between obedience and apostasy as the people continually fail to learn from their mistakes. Apostasy grows, but the rebellion is not continual. The times of rest and peace become longer than the times of bondage. So you can see God's intervention brings time of peace and rest. The monotony of Israel's sins can be contrasted with the creativity of God's methods of deliverance as we saw with Ehud and Eglon. God raises up deliverers. The judges are military and civil leaders during this period of loose confederacy. 13 are mentioned in this book and four more are found in 1 Samuel. Eli, Samuel, Joel, and Abijah. And then part three, the depravity of Israel in sinning like the Canaanites, chapter 17 to 21. These chapters illustrate religious apostasy, social and moral depravity during the period of the judges. Chapter 19 through 21 contain one of the worst tales of degradation in the entire Bible. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah part two in chapters 19 through 21. I'll let you read it on your own. Judges closes with a key to understanding this period. Chapter 21, verse 25, every man did what was right in his own eyes. The people are not doing what is wrong in their eyes, but what is evil in the sight of God. And this is just a table kind of going over these cycles. You can see the the, uh, chapter on the left, the oppressor, then the years that they were oppressed, then the deliverer, and then the years of peace. And this, the hero of this book is Almighty God. He works through men, but God is the hero keeping his promises. He can be trusted, he's faithful. He, he keeps all of his promises. It's wonderful to believe that and grasp that so that when you, f- when you fail and when you sin, you know that you're, he's not gonna let you go. He's not like us. He doesn't get fed up. He sees us in Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness. All of our sins have been paid for with the blood of Christ. I want to skip over this. I, I wanted to say a few words about, about um, these theological and practical themes of the book, the issue of the land, the issue of of disobedience, and the issue of God's faithfulness. But I think we kind of uh, sprinkled that in throughout our lesson. I wanna focus on some more practical applications. So first, I just wanted to mention, we will end up in a cycle of sin if we live by our own selfish desires. We will end up in a cycle of sin just like the people of God and judges when we live by our own selfish desires. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. You're a child of Adam, you've been redeemed, but you have remaining sin. 
Trust God's word and trust the Lord. That's the only reliable trust that you can have. So we need to be reading God's word and meditating on God's word. I was talking to a sister yesterday and she's in the process of memorizing Psalm 119. That's, that's a long psalm, but I'm not done. She's memorizing it in Hebrew. Why is she doing that? So she can walk around with a little sticker on her chest and say, I memorize a lot of, no. She's doing that because she understands this principle. She wants to hide the word of God in her heart because she knows that God says, be holy for I am holy. And she knows that she can't trust herself. So she needs to fill her mind with the word of God. We have to prioritize the word of God. The word of God is light to our path and it's life. It's life giving to our spirit. We need the word of God. Our hearts, desires must be cultivated by God's word. Our hearts have to be exposed to God's word or we will fail and and end up in these cycles of sin. Number two, the kingdom path is one of continuous dependence on God's forgiveness and patience in Christ Jesus. God's forgiveness and patience in Christ Jesus. The work that Jesus did on the cross is not only a once and for all thing that happened in the past to cleanse us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, but it's also a present experiential blessing to us. Every day we can confess our sins and come to him and pray, and he cleanses us afresh, meaning he restores that intimate communion. When after we've grieved the Holy Spirit by our sins, he wants to be reconciled to us. That's why he sent the gospel for us. Psalm 32 says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. This promise is for every one of you and for me. It's ours for the taking. It's there. Come and get it. Amen? Number three, God disciplines those that he loves. Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, but he for our profit that we may be partakers 
of his holiness. He's involved in our lives. He's present in our lives. He's working in our lives. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. And nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's nothing like the peaceable fruits of righteousness. There's nothing like Jesus Christ, our salvation, who provides for us a cleansing and changes us and makes us to love his law and to hunger and thirst and to want to not only taste it in our mind and in our hearts, but actually do it in our lives. And then from that comes a peaceable fruit, a peaceable fruit, a happy marriage, a full bank account. I'm not a prosperity preacher, but when you believe in God's word and you work hard, because the Bible says work hard and it says the diligent will prosper, and that's not true of every single Christian. Sometimes we, our house burns down and our money's stolen. But there's so many, millions and millions and millions of peaceable fruits of righteous living that come through the word of God, through the spirit of God, through the gospel. So many, so many, and most of them are inward fruits that nobody sees, a peace, a conscience that's at peace with yourself and with others. Number four, God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. Judges 2.18, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved with pity. This is, this is in the book of Judges, in the Old Testament. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Our great almighty God, infinite in all of his attributes, full of power, and might and majesty and holiness has affections for sinners like us. He's moved with pity, the word says. He has affection for us. He loves us. Second Timothy 2, 18 through 13. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change, but the word of God is not changed, chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, which are with eternal glory. That's our inheritance, eternal glory with Christ. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So he's faithful to the faithless. Those that are in Christ that fall into sin Time and time again, he opens his arms and says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not like us. He's not like us. 
You know, we get mad maybe when somebody offends us and, and they, need to, they need to crawl back and earn their right to be in my presence and earn their right to, to have my favor. I'm offended. God isn't like that. God isn't like that. He hung on a cross and bled out and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let me end with a, with a um, just a little, I don't know if it's a poem or, or really what to call it. It's written by um, Benjamin Keach. And he's talking about the fullness of the new covenant. And he gives nine statements. I just want to read these and then we'll pray. Nine statements from Benjamin Keach. The blessings that the new covenant gives to all its members. To all its members. Not like the old covenant. In the old covenant, some, there was some Israel within Israel, right? But all in the new covenant get these blessings. For it pleased the Father that in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead dwells as truly in the Son as in the Father. And of his fullness do all believers partake. Of his fullness all we receive the grace for grace. Number one, there's nine of these. Just enjoy how much God loves you in the new covenant. Number one, therefore in this covenant we do not only receive light but the fullness of light. The fullness of light. That's Jesus. Not only life but the fullness of life because Christ is our life whom we receive in this covenant. Not only strength but the fullness of strength. The Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not only pardon of sin, but fullness of pardon. Or the fullest pardon, or complete pardon. Not only righteousness, but the fullness of righteousness. Perfect and complete righteousness, and you are complete in Christ. Not only peace, but the fullness of peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Not only beauty, but the fullness of beauty. For it was perfect through my comeliness which I put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Benjamin must be using the the King James Version there. Not only knowledge, but the fullness of knowledge. And ye also are full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge. The parts may be weak, yet where Christ dwells, or has taken possession of the heart, there the soul has a fullness of spiritual knowledge. Our vessels may be full even though they're small. And then the last one, number nine, not only joy, but the fullness of joy. Isn't that wonderful? God, Jesus Christ, wants us to be full of joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, may God help us to revel in the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Judges and how indeed you intervened in the affairs of men to keep all of your promises. That you are a covenant-keeping, faithful God. We give you thanks and praise for it. 
And we pray that you'd help us in the coming hour to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. You're dismissed. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.